I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. Hi there, Matt Dixon with Purple Patch. And in today's show, we're going to talk about a part of the athletic journey which is often ignored. And I think a big part of that is that this performance journey that we go on is really complex. There's so much to think about. Just think about all of the subjects that we could talk about under the banner of endurance training, strength and conditioning, nutrition, recovery, sleep, and the world goes on. And so how do you gain focus? How do you get to really build around the boulders rather than get distracted by the sand? One of the tools that we use at Purple Patch is Insight Tracker. Because by taking a look inside at your biometrics, as well as combining with the advice and counsel from the team of experts inside Tracker, you get to focus on the components that are going to yield performance for you. It's one of the tools that we leverage for our more elite athletes, as well as our very busy time-starved athletes. And guess what? You can too. You don't even need to be a purple patch athlete. In fact, if you want to get involved, all you need to do is head to insidetracker.com slash purple patch. That's insidetracker.com slash purple patch. And we even have a sneaky code for you. It's purple patch pro 20. Purple Patch Pro 2.0. That's going to get you 20% off everything at the store. And I think that's a rather good deal. All right. Enjoy today's show. I promise you, it's a cracker. Let's go with it, Barry. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. As ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And today, decompression. Navigating the emotions following a major event or race, it is a goodie, and it's going to prove essential along your journey of performance. We get to welcome two special guests, Sarah Cecil and Danielle Adams-Norenberg, both a part of the English Institute of Sport. Sport psychologists, but also hold extensive experience working with the British Olympic athletes across various sports. In fact, Danielle is currently the lead psychologist of British Triathlon. And instead of today focusing on what you might imagine if we invite sports psychologists onto the show about mindset, performance anxiety, prepping for major events, instead, we're going to explore the other side. Some of the components that are actually quite often ignored by both coaches and athletes, it's all about post-event decompression and assessment. The good news is in today's show, you don't need to be an Olympic athlete in order for you to benefit. You don't need to coach Olympic athletes. All you need to do is have an interest in becoming a better version of yourself and building the fabric of a performance journey. That word is really, really important. Over this course of the discussion, we discuss Danielle and Sarah's work with world-class athletes. We also go into the essential need to put in rigor and process around the post-event experience, not just prepping for an event. We have a breakdown of their model of decompression going step by step. And ultimately, the result of all of this is a highly accessible and valuable discussion for all. 
Now, before we get going with this, I thought it might be helpful just for me to provide a little bit of my lens as a coach on this, a little bit of my perspective around why this conversation is so important. And so before I get to present you with their expertise, which I promise you is much greater than mine in this journey, I thought a little context and framing might be helpful. You see, at Purple Patch, we always love to discuss the journey. In fact, you know one of the sayings that we have, embrace the journey. We want you to really take on a long-term planning and thinking when it comes to your own journey of performance. And so within that scope, your races that you decide to do or the events, they're really important. They're targets. They're stepping stones along this journey. And they enable you to have very succinct goals. It's a chance for you to actually chart your progression, your improvement. And of course, there is the joy, pride and satisfaction when you really get a sense of accomplishment, when you achieve the goals that you set up around those races. But still, more importantly, the purpose driving it is your journey. And so these races still ultimately just act as stepping stones. When you cross a finish line, it isn't the end of your performance journey. And so with this context, there is so much education out there. And in fact, so much obsession by athletes and coaches around the lead into events. How do we set up training, the planning for it, the mindset, the tactics? But so many coaches and athletes, unfortunately, ignore what happens following. And post-event is a really important part of the overall process. In fact, just think about how you feel when you finish a major target of an event. There is normally a swirl of emotions, sometimes good, sometimes bad. There's also a desire to analyze to find answers. What went wrong? What was great? So that you can apply those lessons to future events and training. And of course, there's a real need for you to process and ultimately put the emotions and the experience to bed so that you can get on with future goals. All of this requires a continual re-engagement with the journey. And that's trickier than it might seem. In fact, it's no accident that post big events, a lot of athletes become distracted, almost sometimes get the blues. In fact, there's a whole thing around post-Olympic blues, win, lose or draw. There is a real championship distraction that occurs afterwards. And guess what? Our guests today, Danielle and Sarah, they set out to try and fix this. The result of it was the development of a model, and this is central to our discussion today. And the good news about this is that the model is highly accessible, really simple, and it is applicable to you. In fact, it goes well beyond just sport. You can take this model, and it's not very tough to join the dots of how you might leverage this model across broader life and even, of course, in the work setting. So I think you're going to love today's show. That's just my perspective. And just before we get going, I do want to tell you one thing that we have around an upcoming educational opportunity beyond this show. It's on February the 15th. And so I just want to insert here quickly a little episode of Matt's Newsings. Music. 
Yes, it's Matt's Newsings, and I'm just going to take a brief moment to tell you about an opportunity for education. It's anchored around Ironman Performance and Ironman 70.3 Performance, specifically designed for the time-starved athlete. Now, I think most of you guys know, but we've got pretty good expertise of how to amplify Ironman and Ironman 70.3 performance while navigating a time-starved life. In fact, a lot of this show discusses just that. But I thought it would be really interesting and helpful for you guys to get really applicable. So on February the 15th, I'm going to reveal the whole methodology and some of the supporting habits so that you can be successful so that you can ultimately become your personal best, whatever that means for you. And so you might be thinking about taking on a half Ironman challenge or an Ironman challenge, but we don't want this to become a monkey on your back. I don't want this sport and the training for these events to become a second job. We're already busy enough. And so how do you integrate this sport into life and still get the results that you want? And I want to be very clear, this isn't about finding balance, doing less. In fact, I find that whole phrase, less is more, rather abhorrent. This is about leaning in and leveraging a really smart and pragmatic approach so that you get more, you achieve more, you show up and you can nail a PR or you cross the finish line and be thriving. That's the quest. And over the course of this webinar, I'm going to try and provide a really strategic plan for you that you can go on and apply in your own life. It's on February the 15th. It's at 5 p.m. Pacific. But the good news is that if you can't attend live, we have a lot of folks across time zones that listen to the show. Feel free to register and we'll send you a recording. Of course, those folks that do attend live, you're going to get to ask me any question that you'd like about your own journey. It's a great opportunity. And always, it's going to be a lot of fun. And so we're going to leave the link to register in the show notes. You must register to get the recording or attend live. And it's very, very simple. You can also reach out to us to info at purplepatchfitness.com if you want any other information or if you have any questions. But Barry, I think that's it for Matt's Newsings. Now we get to, well, invite Sarah and Danielle. I think you're going to enjoy it, folks. This is a great one. And so without further ado, I give you the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, it is, yes, indeed, the meat and potatoes. And goodness me, we are very excited to welcome Sarah, Danielle. Thanks so much for joining the Purple Patch podcast. Hello. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having us. It is, it is three English people giving the wisdom, or at least you two guys giving the wisdom to the Americanos and our global audience. So I'm very, very excited about the conversation. Really um, thankful for you guys joining the show and, uh, and hopefully over our time together, we can, uh, we can really dig into the subject of decompression and, and beyond. I, I guess to kick us off, I'd love to just get a little bit of a grounding for our audience. And, um, and why don't you guys let me know, firstly, what your role is and how you define your role, but also your history of working with each other and how this whole project uh, came about. And why, why don't we kick that off maybe with, uh, with Sarah? Yes. So um, my current role is I work part time for the English Institute of Sport and then I freelance as a sports psychologist. Um, Danielle and I met, I think, actually about 10 years ago when she rang, rang me up from Scotland and said, hey, um, 
I want to come and like, you know, my my boyfriend or husband lives in London and I want to come down and work out their help. So then, um, and that's always, yeah. So And sometimes people ring you and you feel connected to them and sometimes people ring you and you don't feel connected to them. But I felt connected to Danielle from the start. And I was then working at Team GB's Intensive Rehabilitation Unit um, where athletes can come in for a week for uh, injury sort of rehab and Whenever I went on holiday, we had to get someone to cover for me. So I thought, oh, I know. I know the woman who could do this. So that was sort of Danielle's first introduction to working, us working together. And I probably sat her down and ran, ran her through my injury model and said, have a go doing this. And so that's probably the start of, of our working together. Um, and then I was her line manager. And now she's my boss. So that's the way, <laughs> that's the way we roll. So um, some people are kingmakers. I'm queenmakers. Whoever I line manage ends up being my boss. So there we go. You know, you know, it's uh, I, I love the last line there because uh, I, I just finished just before us uh, having this conversation, coaching a session, and one of my coaching lines is always right in the middle of a hard interval. I say, "This is the queen maker." So, uh, so uh, fantastic, and and uh, so Danielle, why don't we go to uh, to your role? Yeah, so um, part of my role is day-to-day sports psychology, delivering to um, to athletes. Now was canoers. Um, and also do some work with the uh, ballet, with the English National Ballet. Um, but most of my week is head of psychology for the English Institute of Sport. Um, so, yeah, working with Sarah and, and a, a bank of other psychologists, about 25 of us working across different sports within the British uh, performance system. And you, you just recently have taken on that role of supporting the, uh, the British Triathlon team, yeah? Yeah, very recently. It's very new, very exciting prospect just to um, make sure I'm, I'm still delivering to athletes and coaches. I think in terms of leading the service at the EIS, um, after about a year, I've, I've really missed it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, it's very important to ensure I'm keeping my skills up. Um, and you learn so much from the coaches and staff that you work with. You're on a journey together the whole time through developing relationships, encouraging self-reflection. And all of the, the tools and the ways we work are, are informed by the context and the, the coaches and athletes that we work with. So without that, it's really tough to call yourself a sports psychologist. <laughs> well, that, that's, um, that, that, that's a great uh, kickoff because uh, a lot of folks perceive sports psychologists as just – you know, support folk who are trying to fix athletes' confidence. And uh, and there's a perception of, goodness me, I've got to see a sports psychologist. There must be something wrong with me as an athlete. And um, our discussion today is obviously going to dive in and showcase a much broader perspective for that. But can, can you guys explain how you see the role of a sports psychologist in an athletic journey? So um, when an athlete comes to see me, uh, my starting line is often that, They've got to be really good at what they do to get to see me. So most of the people, you know, we work in Olympic and Paralympic sport, professional sport. But even, you know, anybody who I get to see is really good at what they do. So mm-hmm. I tend to start from a strength perspective rather than deficit perspective. Um, so I'm much more interested in talking about how I'm going to help them run faster, ski better, play t- tennis better. So, so that's my starting point. I'm not starting from a deficit point. I mean, sometimes they show up uh, with a, something they want to work on. But I'm, I, I think what we've been really good at doing 
in the UK sports system is reframing what we're here to do. Um, mm-hmm. and most of us work as immersed sports psychologists. Uh, so we're in the sport. We're, we're not behind a closed door. Um, and we're working with athletes. We're working with coaches. We're working with physios. So that, that's probably that the, if we're trying to reframe how people see what we do. Um, just imagine here, uh, predominantly to make you even better at what you're already good at. But our expertise is we kind of understand them. And that, that's really interesting because uh, you, you use the word sort of immersion into the sport and that you know, British sport has been so, so successful over the last 10 to 15 years uh, across many, you know, rowing, cycling, triathlon, swimming, et cetera, like across the Olympic sports it's been f- for a relatively small country has done so well. And it used to be that sports psychology was sort of the, the dark cupboard at the end of the corridor that you would have to go into almost like a, a penal colony sort of thing. But there, so, so it's, do you think that's been a real catalyst? catalyst of, of one of the many, many elements that have really helped sport of, uh, of sort of integrating it into a part of the ongoing journey rather than being an afterthought? Danielle? I think, yeah, I think so. And I, I guess from our perspective, Sarah and I have talked about the proactiveness of, of sports psychology and, and the power that that has for a long time. Um, and, and we work around this idea that the athletes coaches and staff all work with us because they they want to grow beyond where they're at right now mm-hmm. um and i think tribute to that some of the reflections we see post-competition particularly in reflection of tokyo athletes really really self-aware talking about the journey that they've come on in terms of their growth and less focus on the outcome of the competition of course that's important that is absolutely what we do we help athletes perform at their best when it matters most and that relates to results but I think when when an athlete and a coach has been truly exposed to the proactive elements of sports psychology that are strength-based they come away from a competition being able to effectively reflect and debrief on the whole performance itself rather than just the outcome. There's so much focus on priming for competition so getting the mindset ready, in fact, straight away, when I think about sports psychology, I think about, you know, helping an athlete peaking for their prime performance, et cetera, managing performance anxiety, obviously a natural part of it, performance mindset development, et cetera. But what we're here to talk about today is sort of on the other side of the equation in many ways where your guys' project and passion is anchored in post-competition. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know what the catalyst was of, of focusing on post-composition or we're going to label decompression. Well, absolutely. When you, when you think about performing as a journey, you're able to identify a number of different events or situations or circumstances that contribute to the next one. Mm-hmm. And then when you've got a critical event, or the peak event that you're building up to, which most of the athletes that we work with can pinpoint that in their diary, you're working backwards too. So every event has a place in that journey. And if we're really emphasising learning and growing through each of those events or circumstances, the importance of being able to review and, and then reshape and potentially shift the goals slightly or influence the training programme in a slightly different way 
there's so many bits of evidence that you can get from each experience, golden nuggets, you know, success leads to clues. Um, and, and, and the decompression piece is about ensuring that athletes and coaches are able to get out the evidence through an effective review. But we also know that most events along a journey, especially the bigger events and the Olympic Games as an example, so many emotions come with that event. And, and what we wanted to assist people to do is to make sense of those emotions so that the details and the evidence and the golden nuggets that come from success and, of course, the learnings that come from not, not being so successful, then they can truly be learned without being blinkered or, or shifted by any kind of emotions that were still lingering. Sarah, what would you add? Well, I'd say like, so uh, some like our skills as sports psychologists is to help people grow and develop. But we're, but we're also good at, at being sense makers because we're trained to have different situations. And we're trained to help people uh, manage their emotions, understand their thinking, um, understand how their brain functions. The, throughout our support of athletes, we're helping them make sense of training. We're helping them make sense of competition. So it's, we have to help them make sense of the biggest competition because they've got to have a clear, like I don't need to tell you this as a coach, but they've got to have a clear hypothesis to understand how they're going to improve. Like if they hit their target, how they go again. If they didn't hit their target, what needs to change? And to do that, you've got to be able to do that without being contaminated by emotion. Um, and I think, so our driver for this is, I've been involved in Olympic sports since 2002. And uh, I don't really want anybody else to have the post-Olympic blues a year later. And I want athletes and staff to move on in a really healthy way. Because what we do is super exciting. What we're involved with is a great, great thing to be involved in life, whether you're a support staff or an athlete. So we want everybody to like go, have an experience, make sense of it. And if they want to go again, but not a year, two years post it, still be stuck, you know, mm -hmm. stuck, mm -hmm. stuck in, in our context currently in Tokyo. So we're kind of saying if people are still referring to Tokyo, we go, whoa, we need to move on from that. We can help yeah. you do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fantastic. And and our, our, our mission today is to uh, educate the audience on the major principles of this model so that hopefully we can take your work with the very best athletes in the world and that they can extract some principles and, and a little bit of the, the process and maybe apply to their own journey. Because while most of us don't get to compete in the Olympic Games, the, the events that we do or the occasions in our life are very meaningful to us. And, uh, and so I think that there are great principles to apply there. Before we dive into the model, and we're going to go, I'm going to ask you to go through step by step. And I think it will be very, very helpful. I know it's not just athletes that are going from this. In fact, it's coaches and uh and so listen up for the 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 many coaches that are that are listening today um but before we go in i i, I want to talk about um challenges and strengths of some of the the work that you've seen so before we dive into the model i want to come up a level and um and look at the landscape and um I, I would say uh, through observation through experience that most coaches don't seem to have a a template or a specific process to um, 
to go through post-event. So there's such a focus on leading in, charging in, and then it finish, and there's the ashes of good or bad, both very strong emotions. And it's like, all right, the next thing, and there is no process. There is no, um, there is no sort of formal review, uh, whether it's good or bad, et cetera. So I, I'd, I'd love to hear your guys, Sarah, maybe, maybe you take this, but your guys' um, observations of, uh, of coaches and some of the weaknesses that we don't see. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, like, it's coaches, but it's most human beings. It's like we'd much rather th- – think about what's next rather than really unpicking what's just happened so I think it's like we're not skilled or educated in that that's not a part of how we we've been taught or grown as human being so it's it's no great surprise that people are always looking to what's next um because that's exciting um especially in sports which has lots let's say you work like I work in tennis and there's loads of competition so it's much easier just to focus on the next one rather than all stop let's look at this one um, mm-hmm. So there's that because we're you know optimistic and forward thinking by nature human beings that's a safer place to be. Um, so yeah, I mean I, I, I've worked with some amazing coaches and I'd say like, the really amazing ones are the ones who have got that arena skills, isn't it? Who just know in the moment how to get someone ready. Um, but yeah, they, they probably haven't invested as much time and they don't get as much reward for debrief. So you know you don't see any great quotes from coaches about that was an amazing debrief it's all about all oh, the inspirational stuff that they said before me that one one thing which changed or that dressing room talk so you know it's not something that's promoted as a as some as a skill to have and and also i think it's often framed in very probably theoretical scientific here's a reflection model and most you know i mean most of us might switch off for the word reflection whereas if you're going to say we're going to quickly make sense of it so you can move forward with what's important and have a clear hypothesis and stop you going down lots of rabbit holes. That's probably a bit more interesting for people to consider. So I think it's probably where it's come from, how it's been framed. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, you're not going to get the, the sort of celebrity status from being an expert debriefer, but you're going to become a famous coach having said one thing which changed an athlete's performance. I mean, so we're thinking about, you know, being what you see, you don't see any coaches, you know. I mean, I'm slightly obsessed by Ted Lasso. I mean, Ted Lasso does more <laughs> briefing than briefing. If we're talking about, yeah, we're looking at great coaches in that sense. So, yeah, I think, so, I think it's circumstantial. So I, what I think Daniela and I are passionate about is changing the conversation. Yeah. Around this. Okay. And, and it, it it, I'd, I'd love you to paint a picture, and maybe Danielle, you'd, you'd take a crack at this of of modelling what what you would see as really positive coaching behaviour. And, and let's sort of ignore let's ignore like the run up, the, the passionate uh, uh, accelerant of performance. But what are just without going into the model, what are some of the behaviours of a coach of saying this is really important? What are some of the behaviours you see where you're like, yeah, that's a smart coach right there. Yeah, I think one of the things you see initially when it's done well is a time and a space to offload immediately after the event. So typically we might refer to that as a hot debrief. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just giving an athlete time and space to just give that blurb immediately after the performance. 
Um, there's so many things that come from that blurb, as it were. Uh, mm -hmm. Initial reflections. Sometimes there's, like I said, a golden nugget in that too. Um, uh, and if they can remember it or, or recall it, record it, that hot debrief, that can really drive some further debrief uh, conversation. But there's also the opportunity in that hot debrief to validate the emotions as well. And, and if a coach can, can hear the hot debrief insight from the performance itself, as well as offer the opportunity to validate the emotions, that's a really good place to start because athletes want to leave that performance feeling feeling all right about what just happened <laughs> um and and also be knowing that any kind of emotion after an event is also okay and by validating those emotions they they end up not dragging on so much longer um and so that's the first thing that i see done really well is an immediate space to work through that hot debrief can you can you counter that with um, uh, and let's imagine a stereotype of the absolute wrong thing that, it, that can have an, a knock on effect of like no please don't do that maybe some uh, don't name names but uh, <laughs> anyway you're like no that that's just really bad behaviour in the long term you having sort of things to really avoid. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Sarah, does anything spring to mind? I mean, if you tell someone they let you down or you shame them in public. So there's some mm. like, you know, we have uh, like normal, you know, emotions like sadness and we can experience that. But if we turn sadness into shame or guilt or embarrassment, that sticks around a lot longer. So, so that mm. element of, uh, so, I mean, I know coaches who, who couldn't watch their athletes perform live because they got too nervous which is yeah. absolutely fine, isn't it? Um, so sometimes you want a bit of space for the coach post a performance um, mm -hmm. because they've got their emotions too. So, so that, you know, and, and I always tell athletes, they're not responsible for anybody else's emotions. We choose to go on this journey too. So, so I think you've got to help the coach offload their emotions before they interact with the athlete. Um, yeah, that, that that, that that resonates for me. I mean, remember many years, uh, the tension that I would feel at the Hawaii Ironman every year with our squad of professional athletes. And you, you are so vested. And once the gun goes off, the one thing that destabilizes all of us is a complete lack of control. And, uh, <laughs> and, and all you want to do is tinker and form and you just sit back and it's like, don't worry, they know what's going on. And ultimately it's it. But, but internally, it's the same performance anxiety that an athlete feels, but uh, but in many ways, myself being an, an elite athlete, but then also a coach of elite athletes, uh, I was more stable, I would say, uh, mentally or emotionally as an athlete than I was as a coach. And, well, it's, in, uh, it's not in your control as a coach. Like exactly. the worst thing is to feel like you're in, you're trying to control the outcome. That's where the really difficult emotions show up and. I guess that's why the work that we bring to the table with coaches is just as important as with the athletes because, mm -hmm. you know, there's a really big part of what a psychologist can do in that sense is helping a coach manage what they want from the journey too and how they can best experience that journey in, in supporting athletes to perform. Um, there's a whole space space for that. And Danielle, you say you can't, you know, as a coach, you can't control the performance, 
but you could work on controlling the emotions or how you're going to make somebody feel at the end of a performance. You could have a plan. You could have like, a, you know, a, you, you might have your the pre-race routine where you're going to help them and you're going to do this warm up and eat the food at this time, you know, all the other elements. But there's no reason why a coach shouldn't have a plan of how they can communicate afterwards and then refine that and get better and better in that. So, so, but I think people don't never plan for it because we, we hope for the best. It's always best to hope for the best. And we imagine this great scenario and it's going to be amazing. And most of the time it's kind of not because the odds are there's lots of things which can go wrong. But yeah, so I would say to work with coaches, say, okay, what's, what's your plan when, when they cross the finish line or when you first see them, how do you want them to make them feel? What's your number one priority then? Yeah. And coaches are great planners. Oh, go on. I was going to say coaches are great planners. Coaches mm-hmm. are great planners. Plan for that as well. Go, Danielle. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I've got another don't, and that's try and fix it. And that, that comes from some of the best coaches I've seen. They're like, you can tell or you know because you've built up a connection that they're going through something as a result of that performance for themselves and for the athletes. A lot of the coaches that we work with do feel, feel for athletes as well. Um, and the best coaches I've seen, they just don't rush and they don't react. And therefore, they, they don't try and fix anything in the immediacy of, of the finishing of an event. They do their best to almost be with the athlete, let the athlete drive that journey and ensure that the athlete knows that they're there for them. Uh, and, and I think it's very easy to, to not recognise the importance of an athlete feeling like they've got this intimate team around them and the coach is that first stop, first space for that. No matter how successful an athlete I've worked with, they've always felt so much from knowing that there's an intimate support team around them that at the end of the day, are always going to be there as people. And, and if a coach can emulate that in the immediacy after an event, by not trying to fix anything, not trying to change anything, but, but to be there as a human being, that's really, really positive. That's a, that's a, yeah, that's terrific insight. I, I, I want to dive in and get specific. I want to sort of uh, understand, rip apart the model a little bit. But um, I, 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 I want to frame the benefits for, for people as we do this post-event decompression. What, what benefits have you observed for athletes, for, for teams, for coaches when they have integrated this? And, 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 and to give you a little bit of context of this, one of the words that I keep hearing you guys say is the journey which is something that we talk about at Purple Patch the whole time, you know, that the events themselves are just little checkpoints along the way and they create the framework and the lightning rod for us to build towards. But ultimately, it's a performance journey. Um, And so as a part of that, as uh, athletes go on their journey, what benefits do you observe? What's the cell, like the ABC of like, this is what you yield from adopting something like this? Um, Sarah, you can lead us off if you'd like. Yeah, so, so kind of like our catchphrase is you've got to process the emotions that surround performance. That's like a catchphrase. Imagine that's a really important thing to do um, so that you can uh, go again and, and not get stuck in the moment. Um, and by doing this process, you're going to identify your strengths. 
And it, and what is also going to become really clear by the end of it is why you choose whatever you're going to do next. Um, so, and I guess the example, again, I work with a team, and it's looking more at the staff, of the seven who went to the Games, six said they didn't enjoy it, only one enjoyed it. At the end of the decompression session, yeah, all, all seven were really clear on what their strengths were and why they were choosing to carry on on this journey for lots of different reasons. Mm. So that's it's very, yeah, that's really fascinating. So by the, it, and then it, from an athlete perspective, I think um, them and their coach debrief to understand the performance and how to go again. And we make sure the, the emotion doesn't contaminate that debrief. So ideally you want to do what we do before you have your more formal like coaching debrief of an athlete. I think one th one thing I want to sort of add here, which I, I'm making an assumption, but this is, we're talking about negative and positive emotions here, yeah. So, so you, you said making sure they don't get stuck on performance, and that can be dwelling on a really negative bad time, but it can also be I've won a medal and and sort of uh, complacency. I'm assuming, like not actually moving on from positives, would that be a part of it as well? Yeah, yeah, because history, isn't it? The year post, go on, Danielle. No, go for it. That's just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think historically that, that you know, yeah, the best year to make a breakthrough in the World Championships in most sports is the year of the Olympics. Because mm -hmm. most, most of the medalists, their performance tend to drop a bit. Uh, now, yeah. that might be. So, yeah, so, so, so. And when we do this, uh, uh, this emotional decompression with people, we're, we're very neutral in our language. We've no idea whether it was a positive or negative experience. We just want to understand memorable or meaningful experiences. We're not assuming, even if we know how they may feel. Um, and, and Danielle catchphrase, she talks about we're kind of educating people. We can educate coaches and support staff to do this process. And therefore, they're able to have an emotionally driven conversation, um, which is really important for pe a space that people for people to be able to get into. Fantastic. Well, should we dig in? I'd love to love to break it apart. I guess I guess to frame uh, the the model first. I'd, I'd love uh, Danielle. Model design. Where did it come about? This isn't based just uh, out of the. Uh, the the ideas of Sarah and Danielle and we'll go here. So can you can you sort of frame how you how you developed the model and some of the research experience best practices that maybe went into the the building of this model? Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll try and keep it brief. There are there are probably two strands to this. So we've got our experience in sport, um, and like Sarah said, for a number of Olympic cycles, really. For me personally, I felt quite frustrated with the reviews that sometimes happen in that you'll be ready to go and review a performance with, with an athlete and coach and just emotions are are clouding the the, the review um, and what an athlete is getting out of and learning from their performance. And, and so you observe emotions coming in and gosh, these emotions, they've not been dealt with yet. And then so far down the road, uh, a year after the Olympic Games, maybe an athlete is still referring to that performance and how they felt about it. So, so that, there's that going on. But then we had that, that famous lockdown in that big pandemic thing that happened a couple of years ago. And 
athletes, coaches weren't able to go and do the thing that they loved. Um, and then all of a sudden things started to open up. Um, we're like, wow, people have been at home trying to work, trying to, trying to train. Um, and, and, and also colleagues, etc., from our organization ha- had been stuck at home, obviously going through lots of trials and tribulations of any different nature. Um, and, and we kind of said we want to help people make sense of that experience. Um, we want to help them come back to work. Uh, we want to help people have emotion-driven conversations about this really significant period of time that we've all been through um, and really recognising that everyone's experience of that big thing that happened to all was very, very different. Um, and the, the team of us at, at our organisation tried to put something together um, and we found some research by the Red Cross um, and they had done a significant amount of work in terms of helping hostages uh, come back home um, and they put together uh, a, a debrief uh, for hostages to do a peer-to-peer debrief to help each other make sense of the emotions and be ready to come back. Um, and so we used that work from the Red Cross. Um, we used a lot of other research around how to decompress, how to debrief, what does a good debrief process look like? And then as we were preparing for Tokyo, fresh off the back of the positive results we'd seen from the lockdown debriefs, we reframed it and made it more appropriate for those who were experiencing a major event as a performer and so refined it um, and then rolled it out. And so who, who, who is the model for? Uh, so, yeah, so... Uh, so our belief so it is that we can train anybody up to to deliver the model um the model could be for anybody who's experienced something big so you know you could talk about business people i mean it, it's not limited to olympic athletes um so the, the notion is is if anyone's had a big experience we want them to process it so they can move on healthily and when we created this lockdown lockdown debrief um we were pragmatic we're an organization of 250 people there's only 25 psychologists we're not going to do everyone's debrief and we know we saw the importance of this notion of peer-to-peer debrief so who was going to do your debrief was really important in the research so we trained up 150 people in our organization to debrief their peers or somebody they line manage um and we we framed the tool as step-by-step tour that anybody could do after the training and with some support um, when delivering it. So it is totally based in psychology. It's based in research and psychological debriefing. But the language we use and the way of creating it, and this was, this was from a pragmatic need. Everybody was coming back into the workplace. We didn't know what happened to them, and we, but we knew some things may have happened and we wanted to help them return to the workplace. And then, and then we think about the number of people who go to Olympic Games, you know, f- from different countries, including staff and athletes. And again, we want them all to come back and get going with what's important to them as quickly as possible. Yeah. So, so I want to uh, dive into the, the model a little bit. 
and I guess maybe the, the best way to do this is, okay, boom, and we, we're using the Olympic Games as our case study, if you want to call it that. But Sarah, as you said, wisely said, this is about any big event. But let, let's imagine Olympic Games, it finishes. Yay, I won. Or no, I didn't win. But, um, uh, okay, that's where the model comes into action. So I'd, I'd love you to lead us through how the model is applied, what the the phases or the steps are in many ways, and and maybe, uh, Sarah, you can kick us off. Yeah, so um, ideally we'd want post-event for athletes and staff to go through four stages. So you're still at the Olympics, you're still in country, and you do some kind of hot debrief where you're capturing the thoughts and feelings you've got immediately post-competition. Then you get on your flight, you go home, and everybody would have some time off usually. Um, and we'd call that like time zero. So that's stage two. And in time zero, um, we want you to like kind of settle back into your world. We'll explain a bit more about time zero in a bit. And then stage three is this you've got to process the emotion that surrounds performance. And this is a longest, uh, the six step process we've spoken through. Uh, you would do with someone who's trained up in in our tool. Once you've done that, so you've slowed down a bit, then you can go do your traditional performance debrief or review, uh, coach an athlete where you're going to unpick what's happened and figure out what to do next. So what we've seen is people always do stage one, this hot debrief, capturing stuff immediately afterwards. We see them do the performance debrief. Historically, they've not done stages two and three. And that's what we want to encourage people to do. Is that pollution? So, so let's dig into it a little bit. The hot debrief immediately post-event, you know, celebrations, commiserations, whatever. But there's some form of quick review, often with your coach if they're, they're live there or, or uh, whatever it might be. And, um, and, and that's pretty simple to understand. I, I don't think that there's a coach athlete or, or an athlete alive that doesn't get across the finish line and and debrief, even if they're debriefing to themselves. So, so I think I think we can pass on that. Then it's travel home and time zero, as you as you labelled it. So, so for how long is that? I know it's fluid. How long does that sort of time zero last? And, and what's the process there? Well, you're right. You it's for? like how long is a piece of string? Um, although yeah. based on based on the conversations we have had and the, the research we've done really we think about two weeks is probably a, a nice a nice period of time um it's not always feasible by any stretch of the imagination um and, and so it's not a stipulation it's like you know what if you can take a break brilliant do it and if you can do it for two weeks even better um and advising people within that period of time like to do three things, engage in the present, ride the waves of emotions, don't fix them, don't try to change them, embrace them and connect with friends and family. Both Sarah and I work from an acceptance commitment therapy perspective and, and we really used um, the theories uh, in acceptance commitment therapy to put that piece together around time zero. So there's a bit of mindfulness in there. Um, try not to fix. There's a lot of acceptance. Um, so we think keep it simple, just 
give people three things to help them through that period of time when emotions are pretty much all over the place. Yes, you have all of these emotions and the natural tendency for so many athletes is to try and fix things that think or, or, or understand what went wrong or look for solutions yes. or, or plan for the future. It's like, yes. okay, what am I doing next year? Yeah. So it's the big call to action here is don't do that. Is, is that accurate? Just just be in the present and yeah. um, just, be all the emotions and, and then yeah. connect with, uh, you said, friends and family. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, be, be curious about them. Go on, Sarah. Yeah, so the, 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 these there are three like headlines we're giving people so they can plan this time well. Mm-hmm. So we're going we're gonna to say we don't know what's best for you, but we, you've got to do things which help you be present. Uh, we don't try and fix the emotions and then reconnect and it, as a way to recharge. Now, that might be spending time with lots of family members. It might be one or two or friends. But so the guidelines so people can plan this time well. So, again, we're coming back to this. You've got to plan your time well post as well as pre. Uh, the family and friends bit, Yeah, and the family and friends bit is um, because everyone is more interested in you because you've been away doing this fun thing, amazing thing, and you've been on TV and all that stuff. But some of the most grounding stuff is reconnecting with uh, if you've a, fa- a family member with your children. And it, so this is all about grounding you in your actual present day reality to, to, rather than still being stuck at the Olympic Games. Um, and and there's, there's recent research, isn't there, on, on depression that actually uh, uh, doing something for somebody else has a bigger impact uh, on depressive symptoms than therapy. So that's why we're mm-hmm. saying just, just follow it and it's not about you and see what happens there. Um, and some of this guidance actually has come from uh, uh, people I work with and who, who are in the SAS. And when they came back from being on tour, one of them said, you know, I just did whatever my family member wanted me, it, it, them to do because it wasn't about me. Which is, so yeah. we, we know this is a habit for people to do. But the way things are set up, it, it's still all about you because you're the one who's come back with all the Olympic kit and everyone wants to know about it and what was it really like and all that stuff. So we're saying, no, no, ask them about their work or their school or, you know, th- th- their, their life is as valid and interesting as yours because we know that's a really healthy thing for people to do. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's, kind of, yeah. so that's the thinking behind it. And it's, it's uh, grounding is the word, isn't it, and, and per- perspective as well, where it's uh, because – tunnel vision occurs with any event in, in fact even if it's not olympic games it can be just me getting ready for my marathon i've never run and i want to just cross the finish line but everyone can resonate it can become all consuming and um family starts to take second place for work don't worry about that it's and then it finishes and you're like you feel like the rug has pulled been pulled from under your feet so so this is maybe an essential phase to say hang on Welcome back to the real world, and uh, which is going to carry on. And uh, and I guess it's so I can imagine how that becomes a real grounding process. And and again, underlining this is an essential part of the process to go through before you start trying to super analyze or fix anything that went wrong over that experience that's just occurred. Yeah. So it's it, it's real breathing room. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we want you to slow down 
so that we can process the emotion properly so you can go again. It's interesting and maybe I'm uh, uh, lucky, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've sort of been lucky enough to, to, to seem like a smart coach, but one of the things post-Hawaii Ironman was always, we need breathing room, so we'll have a quick chat and we'll go through and they say, go away for a while, you know, yeah. <laughs> decompress is literally a word you used to say, but <laughs> not in the decompression model. We will review this in 10 days or two weeks where then we can actually have clarity. And that, that, that space is really important, um, which, is, which is fascinating. So, okay, we've done that. We've connected with uh, other people. We felt these very, very strong emotions that we were prepared for because uh, Danielle helped us uh, prepare and I, and I knew it was coming, so it was fantastic. Um, now, now we kickstart. The next phase so let's dig into the next part of the model yeah the next part of the model is based on the idea of an emotional driven conversation that's got some guided stages to it um and we find time and time again that the process works <laughs> um so these six stages are relatively prescriptive in nature actually but in the sense of providing mm. a structure for for someone who is almost guiding someone through the journey of, of decompressing their making sense of their emotions. Um, so as an overview of the, of the six stages, I've not got it in front of me. God, this is a test. Um, I'll just run, run through the six of them to start with. And if we want to go into any more detail, we can. Sarah, please do intervene. Right. Okay. So we've got the first one, which is all about contracting the conversation. Why am I here? What do we want from it? Two, is a timeline of meaningful moments. Three are the emotions that surround those meaningful moments. Um, four is about identifying the strengths and strategies that someone used to work through those moments. Then there's a bit of sense-making, uh, consolidation, and what does the horizon look for me? And then stage six is, is wrapping up and, and debriefing. I did it. There you go. That's uh, it's impressive. I'm glad that you actually know it. So, so, I'd love to go back to the start in the conversation. Um, you, did, you did forget one thing. You've got to set some actions at the end of the sixth stage. So you can't leave it without some actions. So that's there yeah, apart from that. Yeah. I've got it in front of me. That's the only reason I can remember it. So there we go. So. <laughs> <laughs> so contracting the conversation that that's creating alignment on what what are we here for and what are we looking to get out of this yeah yeah and i really love this stage because it's one of the one of the fundamental tools for a sports psychologist and and and, and one thing that makes psychology feasible um so so psychology brings this idea of, of contracting your conversations and giving permission to ask questions and to engage in such a conversation there's actually a vulnerable place to be. And so you're, you're really naming that up front. We want this to be a really open conversation because otherwise we can't debrief your emotions. So you set the platform and you cre create permissions for that conversation to be of that nature. Um, and you also decide together, like you said, what do you want from this and how we're going to get there? Um, and in, in some of the conversations or de decompression sessions that we've had, there's, there's also a confidentiality element to it. 
so who might we share mm-hmm. this with if anyone afterwards um or this stays between us two and, and any sharing is is based on the recipient um so i think there are three real fundamental pieces to, to that that contracting about permissions confidentiality and what are we here for so with that in mind then and coming back to our sort of case study of the olympic athlete uh using as our, as our model for this may Maybe take me through what that might look like. So the contracting is clear, clarity, um, what we're looking to get out of it. Then take me through sort of what it might look like as a as a typical case study, if you can. Sarah, why don't you lead me through that? As in how you'd have a contracting conversation or... No, like as, t- 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 take me through the process of, um, you know, as a, as a case study a little bit of we've got an Olympic athlete, they've had the experience, they've had a hot debrief, time zero has occurred. Now we're going through this, they've had a tough time, it's the pinnacle of four years of work. Okay, so how does this conversation flow and... Uh, and I'd love to go through the stages. Yeah, so you, 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 one of the things we'd do before is, is send the six stages across and say, this is what it's going to look like before. So they kind of know what they're coming to. And then I'd probably say, look, this will last about 90 minutes. Um, uh, it's about you. Uh, you can talk about whatever you want. There will be some structure. Um, if we end up going down avenues you don't like, just let me know. Um, and... Uh, but we're going to work through the the six stages, and so the, and so we're contra- we're going to be contracting, and then we say okay. So and contracting is often about making the implicit explicit. So I'm going to tell you what we're going to do uh, today, in that sense. Um, so and and then that's and then you kind of agree, and then you say right, sure, let's get into the next stage. And this stage, uh, we're really trying. To, we're going to do a timeline of their meaningful moments. Because uh, you want to understand their experience, and the importance of doing the timeline is things will, it will they'll remember things that they've forgotten. Um, because we know, we know the recency bias will be important. You know, they'll remember the last stuff or things like that. And so this is about you know Danielle spoke about golden nuggets or gems or we, we want everything to to come up in that sense. And there are lots of different ways of doing a timeline. You can get a flip chart. You can write it on. What I tend to do with the athletes is, because this is 90 minutes about you, I'm going to make notes. You don't have to. I'm going to be writing furiously. You don't need to do anything, but I'm going to be writing down, right, um, let's say people say it started when they got to the holding camp or it started when they first got their kit or wherever, wherever they want to start in that sense. So when we're training people up in this, we kind of train them up in how to have this thing about the meaningful moments. And then I literally say, okay, right, tell me about the, your first meaningful moment related to the Olympic Games. And then they mm-hmm. start. And, I, and, and, I, and that, might be, that might be, for example, I got off the plane and I arrived in Tokyo and the heat was just oppressive and I felt, goodness me, this is you know, X, Y, whatever it might be. Or I got to the Olympic Village and I had this idea of what it was and it wasn't like this and that was destabilizing or it was confidence building, whatever it might But so like – their own experience that they could pinpoint in the whole journey, not just I went off the starting blocks and then I went through the finish. It was the whole experience of 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 that, yeah? Yeah, so, so then you sort of say, right, what's next? 
So you told me about that meaningful moment. What happened next? And then, and often they'll start to, to want to sort of solutionize or describe the emotions. You go, no, no, come back. What happened next? Okay, what was the next meaningful moment? So actually, I feel like when I did this, I felt like a, a broken record. I'm like, it was another one, another one. And you do this till then they're kind of like back home. So we imagine wow. that that's, these are the where they've, where they've, so you're, you're writing furiously and you're sort of um, making notes. Um, but really at this point, you just want to capture what happened. You don't yeah, need it's, it's to go to the storyboard. The, yeah. the storyboard. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and if there's like a really strong one, you're going to say, look, we'll, we're going to come back to that. You know, I'm not, I'm not dismissing you. We are going to talk about that, but let's storyboard. And people will go off on tangents. You need to bring back a bit. Um, but that's a really important thing to document. So they've got it as this storyboard or timeline. Um, so then it's like a, it's a physical thing as well. You know, then this is an important part of under processing the emotion. That there are lots of different elements and, and there'll be a richness which they suddenly emerges. Because they'll remember things. Oh, there was that. Or oh, there was that. And whether it's it, it's a good or negative emotion, it's it's kind of they need to remember it all. So then, so then you've got a timeline. You know, so you can imagine. I've actually probably got one in. I've got a notebook in front of me. If I look back further enough, I've probably got someone's in here. Um, <laughs> so you're right, and you know, I write. I write whatever happened. Like you arrive there, I write down what happened, and then I leave space because I know we're going to come back for the next stage. In that sense. Okay. So, so once it's done, take me to the next stage then. Then what happens? You've done that piece around getting the facts of what happened, the timeline of meaningful moments, the storyboard of meaningful moments. You alluded to yourself, Matt, in, the, in your example when, oh, yeah, that really added to my confidence when I put my kit on, right? That is starting to identify some of the emotions that come with those moments so we've established the facts and now we're going to go back and indulge ourselves in all the emotions that came up. People really light up and really engage. And like Sarah said, bring even more richness to the conversation and start to like connect the dots a little bit at that point. Oh yeah. And I felt, I felt really, you know, overwhelmed <laughs> when I walked into the village or when I walked into the team GB tower lots of people from lots of different sports and all of a sudden I've come from my world where it's just me and my daily training environment. I got on a plane and whoa, I'm overwhelmed. And actually that first conversation with my coach when I talked about what the session was going to be like, I was probably a bit confused. And, and, and that's when you start to really understand how the emotions can build up over, over an event like that. And how powerful it is for someone to go back to those those meaningful moments and recognize the wealth of emotions that they experience throughout. It can sometimes be just a three day period. And, and, and what that you see them, you go, oh, yeah, I did have that feeling then. And, and, mm -hmm. and actually it changed to something even greater or even more complex the next day. So you're labeling each meaningful moment with a series of emotions. And the idea there is you're normalizing them and you're accepting them. And that's a really cathartic process for anybody, especially when they've mm -hmm. gone. 
Yeah, and so and, and and it's not a long process. Interestingly, like the whole conversation is ninety minutes. So there's yeah. it's it's incredibly important, but it's it's not like a three week uh, process to go through. This is a conversation that, that's structured. That's making sure that it's not just emotional, but it's actually and helping um, reflection and also a. a picture of moments that are connected with emotions to say okay it's it's accepted so, so how then does it move to action and uh on from there so th- I, I feel like we're starting to emerge out of the model a little bit and uh moving on. maybe i'm rushing it too much you guys no no no, no stage. yeah we're only on stage three and there's three more stages so the, the first three are kind of reflecting on the past. And all mm-hmm. you're doing is gathering data. Yeah, you're not solving anything. You're not rescuing anybody. You're gathering data for the first three stages. And then stage four, you kind of want to understand uh, what strengths they utilize or skills for mm-hmm. situations which were positive or challenging. Um, so, so, so we're saying you kind of you want to help people unpick how they handle this situation um, and handle the challenges and handle the good times. So what what we this stage is really about is you kind of a mixture of a sort of investigative journalist and a spin doctor because you're getting people to understand what their strengths are. So we're now starting to, you know, shift towards the future a bit. And this is a really lovely stage to do. Because whatever the experience, they will have utilized their strengths, um, but they won't have noticed it probably. They won't have noticed it. They won't have named them. Uh, they won't have had great insight into how they utilize their skills. So that's this section where you're going to say, okay, let's, let's pick out a moment and let me know how you coped. What did you do? Now, this is the first stage that you're allowed to tell people things. Before that, you're okay. just gathering data facts. At this stage, you can see, well, I kind of, um, I noticed this in you. Sounds like you're really resilient. Yeah. How do you do that? And uh, obviously, British people find that a very hard question to answer. They're not very, you know, <laughs> So other audiences may find it easier to do. <laughs> so what you're really, what you're trying to do, really naming their strengths. Um, we know, uh, like, people have got this whole sort of arsenal of strengths, and we really know that success leaves lots of clues, so we need to find them. So we, when we say as sports psychologists we're really good sense makers, we're really, yep. really good at yeah. We're really good at highlighting people's strengths and skills. You're, uh, for, for our American audience that, that are way more familiar with these types of conversations, it, it, it is the most un-British thing that I could possibly imagine <laughs> what you've just taken through there, which is so fantastic. And the irony is not lost on me. It's, uh, I can imagine taking my brothers through this. They're like, I'm not having this conversation. It's <laughs> yeah, helpful to be a little bit more American in this section. Because I said Americans do this so much better than us, and we need to steal from them about this. So yeah, for an American audience, yeah. so this, uh, so that that's kind of the fourth stage. So you imagine then, and again, I'm writing things furiously down. I'm writing down what their strengths are and what skills they utilised, and we're 
were developing this kind of, uh, it, I'm not making it up. It's what they did. So it's based in facts. I'm not just saying you're amazing. Um, and that's really important because when you come back from the game, especially if you've won a medal, people put you on a pedestal. Yeah. Uh, it's really important you find a way to tell your authentic own story, not what other people are going to say about you. Yeah. Um, so this is that's a really important part. So that's stage four. Um, are you ready for stage five? Let's go, yeah. let's go right go, in. Let's finish it. It's five and six slide. for us to close out the conversation. <laughs> well, like after the spin doctor piece, um, you've taken someone through identifying their, their strengths. There's a real natural shift then to go, okay, so what does that mean for you now? Uh, and we often say that the critical question is what's on the horizon for you? And and through the each stage plays such a significant role in a natural progression or a natural conversation that's just structured. So at that point when someone has gone, oh yeah, I did do it that way, they've got that those strengths recognized. In in my experience, they're ready to then go, oh, and I really want to do this now. Because you've you've developed so much trust with them as well through this stage, you've done everything really well so far, remember. So they're they're on board mm-hmm. with you and they're going through this with you. They they trust you. you. You've created a bond and a connection through the structure of the conversation and the skills that you've brought to it. So naturally they're then ready to go, I'd like to do this now. I'm really excited to bring this strength or this coping mechanism or this strategy and 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 harness it with awareness. I want to consciously use this strength or this strategy. And now I'm actually ready to go training. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, wait, we'll just do the review first. But actually more often than not with the athletes that I've done this with, they've gone from a point of, of confusion um, and, and and then come through this conversation through these stages and, and they're now on stage five and they're ready to go training. And, and you can really engage yeah. in this stage with them by helping them shape what does that next stage actually look like. And because you, you're doing that sense-making piece with them, that they'll then believe in, in the journey that they've decided to embark on from here, the actions that they're probably going to take take now because they've gone on that journey and you've guided them through that journey to the point where they're really ready to do it. It's the, it's the re-engagement side and, uh, and the uh, application of the lessons that you drew for good or yeah. bad to put into action as you engage again. Yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. amazing. Go ahead, go ahead, Sarah, because I remember you, you, you said earlier in the conversation, remember the action plan out of that. So Yes, so sec- yeah, by the end of section five, you've probably got some clarity on your current why. Um, and so we might do a bit of summary around that. And then the really important thing is to set one, two, two or three goals. So bear in mind what we've discussed today, what two or three things you're going to go away and do. They don't have to be mm-hmm. big things. Um, because, you know, they're now in a place where they're ready for action. They're ready to go and do a really good debrief, really unpick with their coach exactly, you know. Good, bad, what do we now know? But they've got to have some clear actions to, to guide. Um, and that's from all the rules that's on debriefing. You've got to have some goals because uh, you've got to start this planning again. 
And and I'm assuming the goals, um, would I be right in saying that the, the goal is not like, oh, I want to go and um, win a uh, world championship goal the next year? Is it more uh, goals of actions that I'm so, so this is something that I am going to integrate or whatever it might be as, a, as an action plan? It, it, give me something tangible on what you mean by goal there, because it can mean different things to different people. The goal might be to go and share this story with different people. That might be a really important thing to do. Right, so one of the goals is that often comes out of this, I'm going to share this with a few people, uh, family members, coaches. So that might be a goal. Or actually, I've got some insight that it's really important for me to have fun along the way. So that's going to be a goal that I'm going to like, not to take this all too seriously, perhaps. Or it's a goal that actually I need to have more emotional conversations with my coach. So there, there could be a real variety which have come out. Um, because they'll have got some insight into what they need for their balance, what their motivation. Um, it might be I'm going to go out to dinner. You know, coaches might say I'm going to go out to dinner with my wife more often. It, that's fine. It's, there's got to be some action. Some will be related to the sport. Some may not be. And both are fine because they're driven from insight. But, yeah, but they're not right. That's it. I've got to go and, you know, win Kona next year. That's not the purpose yeah. of this. Yeah, the purpose is right, actually. Yeah, I need to um, – it, it tends to be, from my perspective, the ones I've done a lot of – actually, there's lots of people I want to now share this story with. I've got a way to describe my experience. Um, uh, yeah, I um, – one, one of the things in in, uh, in our own coaching was to talk about uh, successful coaching is of, often taking – some really complex things and making them simple and accessible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we actually have a whole saying at Purple Patch, nail the basics, uh, you know, focus on the boulders, not on the sand many times. One of the things of, of power or beauty or whatever you want to say about this model is it, it's very accessible. But from my, as, I, as I learn about it, it creates process or process uh, for the Americans uh, and, and a framework and structure because actually like our experience in the pandemic, it, one of the challenges was it was just destabilizing. Like we had no temp pegs. It was just like this storm. And so so it was such a process for people to get to even some form of structure, which is <laughs> a parallel experience of post-event. It's just so many emotions and, and I think what you've created is a really, really simple and accessible structure uh, and, and a little bit of discipline around this is how you do it so that you can move forward. And mm-hmm. uh, and, and that's the real power. Like coming out of this conversation, yeah, this even without being trained in it yet, I should point out, because uh, I will be, but um, it's, it, I can see an evolution of just uh, a bit of patience and uh, an organization that can occur with a structure. So it's fantastic. I, it's, it, so firstly, thank you and uh, and congratulations, because I think it's really, really powerful. And uh, you're shifting the British culture as you do it as well, which is even better. <laughs> well, strengths. <laughs> thank you, Matt. Thanks for having us. No, fantastic. Well, I hope and um, uh, in the show notes, of course, we're going to have um, uh, a lot of the information about the model. We'll share uh, what the model looks like so that you can review it.
and uh, we'll also um, reach out. Is there anywhere that the uh, the audience you'd like to send them to to learn more if they can follow you on the the social medias? I know that you're heavy influencer. Anything along those lines, or uh... Uh, we could send you. Our, I mean, I've got a vet, mine's called uh, my uh, professional. It's Smurf Psych. If you want to follow me, and actually, uh, I do talk about depression on there a bit as well. So there's a little right. bit of like stuff about when a good time is for different people to do it. Good stuff. And uh, Danielle, would you uh, like people to follow you along your journey at all? Um, well, yeah, I am. I do have a Twitter handle, although I'm not as active as perhaps I should be. There will definitely be appropriate updates on decompression when major events come up. Um, and, and there's lots of resources on, on both, of our, both of our Twitter handles in terms of decompression. Um, so, yeah, definitely keep an eye out for, for updates on that. Fantastic. Well, guys, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate it. I know you've been very, very generous with your time and, uh, and it's been a lot of fun, but more importantly, it's been uh, really insightful. So thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Guys, thanks so much for joining and thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed the new format. You can never miss an episode by simply subscribing. Head to the Purple Patch channel of YouTube and you will find it there and you could subscribe. Of course, I'd like to ask you if you will subscribe. Also, share it with your friends. And it's really helpful if you leave a nice positive review in the comments. Now, any questions that you have, let me know. Feel free to add a comment and I will try my best to respond and support you on your performance journey. And in fact, as we commence this video podcast experience, if you have any feedback at all, as mentioned earlier in the show, we would love your help in helping us to improve. Simply email us at info at purplepatchfitness.com or leave it in the comments of the show at the Purple Patch page and we will get you dialed in. We'd love constructive feedback. We are in a growth mindset, as we like to call it. And so feel free to share with your friends. But as I said, let's build this together. Let's make it something special. It's really fun. We're really trying hard to make it a special experience and we want to welcome you into the Purple Patch community. With that, I hope you have a great week. Stay healthy, have fun, keep smiling, doing whatever you do. Take care.